good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Chris Majeski. I'm the family pastor here. Uh, so glad to, to be with you this morning. It's my privilege to share from God's Word. Uh, I preached last Sunday uh, and then again this week, uh, kind of helping Dave out with the whole Honduras trip and coming back from that. thought it would be nice if he didn't have to preach getting, out, getting home at 1030 at night last night. So, uh, so, But excited. I've been loving this chance to dig in on Colossians. We've been working our way through the book of Colossians. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at uh, part of, uh, most of chapter 2 this morning. Uh, before we do that, uh, you'll notice that I'm wearing my, my, beer, my bear shirt, right? You see my, my bear shirt repping my team this morning. We were invited to do that, uh, support your favorite NFL team in honor of the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, I went and bought this shirt this week. Uh, I realized my, my other uh, Bears gear was, uh, was tattered and worn and old. I'm a lifelong Bears fan and so supporting my team. You know, I came to a conclusion. As I was l- looking for this shirt this week, it was hard to find a Bears shirt. It was very difficult. I, I, I had to go a lot of different stores. I ended up, you know, ordering this online. And, and uh, I came to the conclusion that because the Bears are such a great team and be, their, their gear is so in such high demand, that that's why it was so hard to find. Everybody's just buying it out, right? That's what's happening. That's the conclusion conclusion I came to. There might be other conclusions you could come to, but that's what I'm choosing to believe about the situation. Uh, That's actually a perfect tie-in to the message this morning. We can experience something, and we can choose to believe truth or falsehood. Uh, that there are reasons we can, we, can, we can make up logical explanations for things and get down a path in regard to spiritual thinking. We can get down a path that actually is far further from the truth than we thought we were getting. And what happened here in, in Colossae, this, this church that, that Paul is writing to, is there was some false teaching that was happening, and he was trying to protect against that and bring them back onto on, on, on uh, the right path, onto the firm foundation of Jesus. And so uh, there, was some people, there were some people trying to, to, to sell them falsehood, trying to tell, sell them lies, uh, just like I tried to sell you a lie there about how the Bears are such a great team. Uh, but, but this is what Paul's trying to address here in this passage. And so what I want to do is I want to read the passage together, uh, and, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll start looking at what, what he had for them and what he has for us in this passage, what God has had for them and what he has for us. So let's, uh, let's pray and invite God to teach us and let's read this passage together. Our God and our Father, we gather here as your people, eager to worship you and eager to experience you and to grow in our relationship with you. We've done that through the singing of songs and worshiping you. Through that, we've worshiped you through the hearing of testimonies and celebrating the work you're doing around the world. And we've done that through giving of offerings as well. And now we're doing that through looking at your word. We pray that you would speak to us. Would you open our hearts and minds? Would you make us moldable and pliable to shape us into the image of Jesus? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to read uh, the whole passage. It's verses 6 through 23, uh, so I encourage you to have your Bible open. If you have a Bible, open to that, uh, that passage. It'll be up on the screen, um, and so, uh, but I uh, encourage you to follow along as I read, uh, starting in verse 6. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him, and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world, rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, 
And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only a shadow of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by instilling on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world? such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. So here's Paul writing to this church. There's a lot going on here. He starts in verses 6 through 7 talking about his hope for them and how they'll walk with Christ, walk in Christ. And and then he talks about what that looks like. And and, and we're going to look at that together in a moment. And then he moves on in verse 8 to talk about a fear he has that they'll be taken away by by this deception that these people are are peddling, right? This fear of what could happen, the dangers that they face. And then he shares how awesome Jesus is. And what Jesus has done for us. And he elevates Jesus. Wanting to make it perfectly clear that Jesus is better than what these false teachers are proclaiming. That Jesus actually defeats what they're saying. That he is far superior than what they're saying. And so there's no reason for them to be tempted. There's no no good over here because Jesus is better. He goes on to spell out some of the false teachings and how Jesus has overcome that. And so in this passage, we have Paul building up their faith, strengthening their faith, giving them a firm foundation and reminding them of who they are. And in verse 6, it says, Just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. You must continue to follow him. The actual literal translation there is to walk in Jesus. Just as you've received him, walk in Jesus is what it says. Walk in Jesus. A very big difference between walking with somebody and walking in right? Walking with somebody. You go on a walk and you go walk with somebody. They're along for the walk with you. They're a partner with you. They might be directing the walk. They might not be. They might be just accompanying you on the direction you want to go. He doesn't say walk with Jesus. He says walk in Jesus. Walk in Jesus means that Jesus is central, that he is the one guiding and directing, that he is what it's all about. He's not just an attachment along with us. He is the focus. He is the center. And so to walk in Jesus is what he's telling them to do. This spiritual walk that he's proposing, then he goes on to spell it out a little bit more in verse 7. And in verse 7, he uses four verbs in one sentence. Four verbs in one sentence. It's, it's kind of, it might have been two, we're not quite sure, but four, four verbs in this one verse, right? And the concept that he gets at here is so significant for us as we understand what it means to walk in Jesus. 
And so I'm going to talk a little bit about these verbs. And those of you who are, who are language people, you might geek out over this. Those of you who are not language people, don't worry, I'm with you. We're going to put this in simple terms that we can all grasp, all right? We're going to, we're going to be able to do this, all right? But it's so significant for us to see what's happening here. These four verses that he uses. The first three, the first three verses are in passive voice. Passive voice. And the fourth one is in active voice. So passive voice, just so we're clear on that, what that means. Passive voice means that we, that we are not the, the direct agent involved. It's not something we did. It's something that happened to us or that someone else did for us. We are the recipient of it. We are not the one who is directly uh, responsible for it. it. We didn't act it out. Someone did it for us or to us, right? We are pa- it's passive. Okay, so the first verse here, or the first, first verb, uh, it's in verse 7, it says, let your roots go down into him. Let your roots go down into him. Now, the actual translation is be rooted. Be rooted in Jesus. So you're, you're filling the blank here is rooted. Walk in Jesus means that we're rooted in him. So this, this verb is a, a perfect tense, all right? Uh, so uh, it's a perfect tense. We've got past tense, present tense, future tense. We've got perfect tense as well. Perfect tense defines a verb that is, it happened in the past, and the results are seen in the present and into the future. Happened in the past, accomplished in the past, but we're experiencing the results now. So this, present t- uh, this perfect tense is so significant because what it's telling us when he says, be rooted, he's telling you, this has already happened. It's a passive verb. God did it. He has done it for you. This happened already, and you're experiencing the results of it now. Powerful, significant for us in our spiritual lives. Because when we understand that what it means to walk in Jesus, the starting point is that God took us from this place where I was planted, and he planted me in Jesus, and my roots are in him. He did all of that. He has placed, it, placed me there. And he spells this out in verses 13 and 14 more. He, he tells us what this looks like. It says this in 13 and 14. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Verses 13 and 14, you ever wonder what Jesus has done for you? You ever wonder what God means by how he has brought you back, he has redeemed you and brought you back to himself? Verses 13 and 14 are a great summary of that. What he tells us that happens here is that our condition is we were dead in our sin. We were dead, spiritually dead. But then God performed a surgery and he cut away our sinful nature. He removed it. He cut away our sinful nature, breaking those chains, breaking those bondage, bondage. And then he did this, this surgery that made us alive with Christ. We're dead in sin, now we're made alive with Christ. It says he forgave all our sins, forgave all our sins, but not only forgave them, he canceled the record of them. It, they didn't just get brushed under the rug where they're going to come back up, where we know they're there. He's taken them away. He's erased the board. He's, he's erased the slate. It's clean. He's taken away because he nailed it to the cross with Jesus. This is what it means when he says he, we are rooted. He's talking about how he has done all of this and it planted us in Christ, and so we are to allow our roots to go down into him. The next thing he talks about in verse, uh, verse 7 here is, and let your lives be built on him. And let your lives be built on him. We are to be built up. To walk in Jesus means that we're to be built up. And this again, passive verb, God is the one doing the work. We are, it is happening to us. We are the recipients of it. But this is a present tense verb. This is happening now in the present tense. Actually, the next three are. This, ver- this one and the next two, they're present tense. They're happening right now in real time. 
And so he's saying that we should, because we're now we're rooted, he moves from an agricultural uh, 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 metaphor to now a construction one. Now you're being built up. And this idea of being built up is that we are under construction. We're always under construction, that there is more work to do. We are not a finished product. And so there's more to learn. And there's more ways that we can know God and, and press in deeper into relationship with him. And so we are to grow in our understanding of God and of his word. They, un, they, they placed their faith in Jesus and they were planted there. And now they need to, to, uh, to, to, to learn and to grow and to build up their faith. God, is gonna, God wants to do that in them and, and they're to participate in it. And, and he says this in verse 9. One of the ways that they're going to do this is by, in verse 9 is by seeing Jesus clearly. By understanding who he is. Verse 9 says, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body. You ever wonder where the Bible says that Jesus is God? Right there in that verse. Right there in that verse. There's other places that it does, but right there, Colossians 2, chapter 9. In uh, chapter 2, verse 9. In Christ lives all the fullness of God in bodily form, in human form. So when we understand who Jesus is, part of the building up our faith is to have, a, have the proper picture of him, to understand who he is, and to grow in our, in, in, in our connection and our relationship with him. And then he moves on, moves on to say that, uh, in, in, still in verse 7 here, then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught. Your faith will grow strong in the truth you're taught. And so the next way that we walk in Jesus is to be strengthened. To be strengthened. Again, God is the one doing this. He is strengthening us. He is the agent. This concept is different from building up. There's a slight difference here. The building up is the learning and the growing. The strengthening is this idea of establishing, of making it firm, of making it solid. I like to think of it as like, if, uh, my, uh, like working with clay. My kids are, are doing some art stuff, and one of my, my children recently did, a, did an art project with clay, and they formed the clay, some kind of the building, right, shaping it, but then that clay needed to be hardened. It needed to be established. It needed to be firm. And through putting it in the oven, it became hard. It hardened, right? And so this idea of strengthening is to be encouraged in our faith, becoming more and more convinced of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. The Colossians needed this. They needed both building up and they needed strengthening. They faced this false, these false teachings, and they could easily become convinced by these religious arguments that people were putting out, and these arguments that undermined Jesus. They needed to be strengthened. But you notice how Paul does it. If you caught it when we read it, I know we read it fast. Paul doesn't launch into a lecture taking apart their arguments, dismantling their arguments. What he does instead is he references what they're talking about, and then he points to Jesus, and he talks about Jesus. Instead of taking apart their arguments, he elevates Jesus and talks about how great he is. He focuses them on the foundational things of their truth, uh, foundational uh, truths of the faith about how, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So they get really good at knowing Jesus, and it's easy to spot the fake then. The strengthening of our faith. God is at work to strengthen us. The next Thing, the next uh, verb here is, is uh, the end of verse 7, and you will overflow with thankfulness. You will overflow with thankfulness. And so here, again, present tense, but this is an active verb. This is something we do. We are the agent. It is now our job to overflow with thankfulness. It's a, it's, it's a response to what God has done. 
And it's a natural response to what he's done. When we understand what he's done for us through Jesus and how he's rooted us and how he's building us up and how he's strengthening us, it's a natural response for us to overflow with gratitude. As he pours into us and continues to do so, it's our job to let that flow out to others, to express our gratitude to him and to tell others about him and the great things he's done. And so as we look at these four, we see three that are passive, that God does them, and then one that, I, that we're active. So what do we do as somebody who wants to walk with Jesus? What is my responsibility? What am I supposed to do, and how do I engage? Because I want to be connected to him. What do I do? As I, as I look at this, I wonder that question. And I like to think of it as a dance. I think a, thinking of our relationship with God as a dance is a really great way of, of, of keeping the proper perspective here. And so God is the one who's active. He is, he is uh, rooting us and building us up and strengthening us. That is, that is true. He's the one who does that. But it doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play. In a dancing, there's a person who's the lead, and then there's a person who's following, right? And so God is the lead, and we're to follow. But if, you, if you've watched any dancing, you've done any dancing, you, you know anything about it, you know that the person who follows doesn't get dragged around the dance floor, they're not just, just, they're not just a, 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 a fish there that's just like a dead fish. They're, they're actually participating. They're engaged. They're active. And they're following the lead of their partner. And it's a beautiful thing that comes together as they work together. And so God is at work, and it's our job to cooperate and to follow his lead, to dance with him. And so our spiritual walk, we need to partner with him. He wants to build up our faith. He wants to strengthen our faith. It's our job to be open to that. It's our job to open ourselves to him and invite him in and invite him to teach us and to shape us. It's our job to place ourselves in his presence so that he can more easily do that work. It's our job to, 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 to place ourselves in places where we're going to experience him and learn from him. And so Paul makes the point here that they are, are to, to, to walk in Jesus, and he spells that out, what it looks like. And then he moves on to another way that they're to do that, to protect against this staying where they're supposed to. They need to be aware of, they need to be aware of the ways that they can slip off track, the ways that they can be, uh, take, go, go down a detour in a bad, in a bad sense, go, get, off, get off the path and get, get lost in the wrong direction. And so the, the next part here is to beware of the detour of legalism. That's what he goes into. He says, beware the detour of legalism. He doesn't say that. That's what I'm saying. But legalism, understanding what that word is. Legalism is any attempt to gain acceptance or forgiveness from God through your own works or merit. Any attempt to gain acceptance from God or forgiveness from God through your own efforts. So this term legalism doesn't actually appear in the Bible. But it's a concept that it's talked about multiple places, multiple times. It's a word that you probably will never hear outside of the church. It's a very church theological kind of word. Uh, volumes have been written about this. Theologians have written tons and tons about this. The concept of legalism, at the heart of it, it's rules and regulations. It's focusing on rules and regulations. And so my relationship, my, my connection with God, my, my spiritual walk with him is a set of rules and regulations. And if I do these things then I'm acceptable to God. And if I don't do these things, then I'm acceptable to God. It's do's and don'ts. It's rules and regulations, right? 
And so it's, it's focusing on my standing before God based on the religious things that I do. And sometimes in church, we have, we have the, an, in an evangelical church, in, in churches like ours, we have an aversion to this idea of religion or religious, saying we're religious. And so sometimes people want to say, you know, I, I, want, to, I want to set apart from that. I, I'm, not, I'm not religious in the sense of following rules and regulations, because often when people use that term, religion or religious, they are thinking you're following a set of rules. You kind of are, are uh, you know, kind of um, prim and proper and tight, uh, tight-lipped, and you're, 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 you're following all these rules and regulations, right? And, and, and the idea we want to say is, hey, it's not that, it's not really what it's about. Those of us who have encountered Jesus know that it is, it is not a set of rules and regulations. It's a relationship. It's a connection. It's, it's, a, it's a life that is, that is oriented towards him and built on him. It's a walking in him. And so sometimes we want to separate that. We want to say, hey, I'm not religious. I, I'm about a relationship with Jesus. Now, personally, I don't have any problem with that term religious. But when somebody who's outside of, uh, outside of the faith, somebody who's not a believer, says, oh, you must be really religious, I, I often... My radar goes off, and I, say, I want to say, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? You think I'm very religious. Because I want to be able to explain to them. I want to have an inroad to tell them about Jesus, and I want to be able to explain to them, hey, my life isn't about a set of rules. My life isn't about a set of, of, of structure that I have to abide by in order to make myself acceptable to God. It's actually about a loving relationship with Jesus. It's actually about a life that is connected to him and oriented to him in this dance that I'm doing, that, that I'm experiencing him on a daily basis because of what he's done for me. I want to be able to clear that up. It's not about rules and regulations. And so this term of legalism, it's easy for this to, to, to seep into the church. That's why it's written about so much. And there's some things I want us to see about it and why it's so dangerous. The first one is that it's incompatible with grace. It's incompatible with grace. As Christians, we are all about grace. As Christ followers, we understand that God has, has graciously welcomed us into his family, that he has done things for us, not because we deserved it. Grace is God's undeserved favor. We didn't earn it. He loves us and is for us just because he is. And so you can see at the very core of grace, it is opposed to legalism. They're opposites. They're opposites. Legalism involves earning something. I work for this. I earned this. Grace is a free gift. It's unearned. They're opposed. In legalism, I get a reward because I deserve it. I earned that. Now I get a reward. There's an exchange that happens. In grace, I get a reward just because God loves me and wants to give it to me. I didn't earn it. There's not a transaction there. I did this for you, God. Now you give me this. It's different. And this is such a key concept for us to get because it's been said that grace sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. It sets it apart. That our, our, our religion, our, our relationship with God is based on what he's done for us, not what we've done to, to make ourselves acceptable to him. Romans 3, 20 through 22 talks about this. This is Paul talking about this concept in another place. It says this, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law being the commandments, the, 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 the things we see in Scripture that God says to do and to not do. Okay, so no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. 
But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. And so Paul is clarifying here in Romans 3 that you may look at the scriptures and see a bunch, of, a bunch of rules, a bunch of commandments, the law. You may look at that and think, okay, this is how I'm made right with God, by following these things, by doing these things. And, he's, and he says you would be wrong to believe that. Now it's easy, we see where people would get that concept. And in fact, he's saying that even in the Old Testament, that that was not what God intended for them. They could not accomplish the law. They could not live up to it. But the law served to show them what was right and wrong, to illuminate for them what was sin and what was not. And so the law served them in that way. And because they couldn't live up to the law, God created a sacrificial system. It was temporary, and the animal would pay the price for their sin so that, they, that, uh, so that their sins could be forgiven. And that, paid, that, 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 uh, that animal, that sacrifice, it pointed ahead to Christ who would be the ultimate sacrifice, who would sacrifice one time and solve all of our sin problem. And so Paul goes on to say, he's saying that Jesus is the way. He's saying you look at the law and you want to do it that way. That's not the way it goes. We look to Jesus. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. So when you find yourself thinking that God is pleased with you because of what religious deeds you're doing, or when you think that God is unhappy with you because of the religious deeds you haven't done, you may be moving from grace to legalism. And it's a warning sign. And it's something to be paying attention to. It's sneaky and it works its way into our lives so easily if we're not careful about it. We need to pay attention to that and maybe redirect our thoughts back to the truth. A second way that legalism is so dangerous is that it's our natural drift. It's our natural drift. We don't and we won't grow in our faith on accident. Our drift is away from God. We will not become like Jesus on accident. It takes intentional effort. And our natural inclination is to drift towards legalism and performance-based religion. We drift from the truth back to the old ways of thinking. And this performance-based thinking, it makes sense that it would seep into our spiritual life because it's the way our world operates in an, in an, in an appropriate way, right? Like, like, think of your job. You go to work. You, you, you commit yourself. You serve your, your time there, I don't mean it like sound like a prison sentence, but you, you give your time to your job, and they give you a check in exchange. There's a transaction that happens there. You perform, you get a reward, right? We see this in, 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 uh, in relationships with people. We invest time with them. There, there's, there's connection and, 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 and uh, closeness that happens. There's a reward. There's a return there, right? Even in gift giving sometimes, right? Well, I, I have to give them a gift. They gave me a gift, right? There's an exchange that happens there. It's this, this expectation of the way that things work. And so if we're not careful, we apply that to our spiritual lives. We apply it to our spiritual lives and think there, there's this, this set of rules that we have to do to, in order for God to accept us. We perform and then he accepts us. And if we're not careful, we can do this while looking like good church people, we can be sitting in these chairs. We could be sitting at home, worshiping at home, and, have, and, and believe that we're doing the right thing. 
all the while our heart being in the wrong place. Isaiah 29, 13 says, And so the Lord says, These people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. What he's talking about here is anybody observing outside would say, those are good church people. Those are good God-fearing people. They identify themselves as part of his family, and they say the right things. And they're, they're even going through religious practices. He says that they're learned by rote. They, they just learn these, and they're, they're just memorized. But he says, their hearts are far from me. So the outside observer would say those are good Christian people, those are good churchgoers. But God who sees the heart says their hearts have drifted from me and they're far from me. So using the dance analogy, it's like we learn some steps of a dance and we walk through those steps, but we're not really following the lead of our partner. We're not really working together. We're not really free-flowing and, and, and doing something, creating something that's beautiful just going through the motions. And so given our natural drift to performance-based thinking, it's worth considering what are the ways that you're tempted to think that Jesus isn't enough? What are the ways that you're tempted to think that Jesus isn't enough? When you think that you've got to do something to prove yourself. In my own spiritual life, this shows up. If I've done something wrong, I'm convicted of my sin, and I confess that to God, and then I feel like I have to do something to prove that I'm sorry. To do penance. On the surface, that looks good. I want to demonstrate that I'm really sorry, right? But what am I doing there? I'm trying to pay for my own sin rather than trusting that Jesus did it. Penance is not, is not the way of the gospel. Penance is not grace. And so I can be tempted to go that way of, of paying for it myself. I've got to take it on and, 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 and do my penance, right? Or if I haven't been spending time in God's word and I'm tempted to think he's angry at me because I'm not spending time with him. The reality is he knows how good and important it is for me to spend time with him. And he wants that for me. But he's not angry with me that I've missed that. He's a loving father ready to welcome me back. The third thing about legalism and why it's so dangerous is that it's counterproductive. It's counterproductive. It's ironic. It actually produces the thing it's trying to avoid. It actually produces the thing it's trying to do. It. So as Christians, we love Jesus. We want to be close to him. We want to align our lives with him. We want to, to grow, uh, take steps closer to him, right? And if we allow legalism to seep in, it actually takes us further from Jesus. Instead of growing closer to him, we move further away from him because we start to follow rules. We start to follow rules, and the, le- and the more we follow the rules, the less we need Jesus. I've got it under control. I'm following the rules. I'm confident in my own ability. I don't need Jesus, Right? And the more we follow these rules and build our lives on these rules, the more we judge others who don't. And we think we're better than them. And so legalism feeds pride, and it leads to judging others, and it leads to self-reliance and a bitterness. Because when I'm performing this certain way, and then God doesn't give me the reward I think I deserve, now I become bitter and resentful. My transaction isn't working, right? So legalism actually produces the very thing it's trying to avoid. Jesus talks about this in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. It's a famous passage about these, these guys who are, are in the temple and they're praying. Uh, it may be familiar to some of you. Then Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. 
the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I think every one of us, if we were standing there hearing that that Pharisee pray, we would say, that is not right. That's not what we're about. That's not what Jesus was about. That is not what Jesus did. We know that's wrong. We know that's wrong. And yet, are there ways that we're tempted to think that we're better than others? Because that's what he's doing. So some litmus tests to see if you've drifted into legalism. When you're thanking God that you're not like others, you might be on the path of legalism. When you're thinking God is pleased with you because of your religious deeds, you might be on the path to legalism. When you think that God is not pleased with you because you haven't done the right religious deeds, you're on the path to legalism. When you think that you're only right with God if you do X, Y, and Z, you've set up a performance-based system. Legalism is dangerous, and Paul warns against it, and we would do well to heed that warning and to pay attention to it. And so I'll end with this. I said it last week, and I think it's worth saying again. Jesus is for everyone, and he is all we need. We don't need our own system of rules and regulations. It's all about Jesus. He is for everyone, and he is all we need. And so I'd like to read verses 6 and 7 again as we close, but I invite you to stand as we do that. And as you stand, I want to invite you to visualize these four verbs of being rooted in Jesus, your feet, your roots going down into him, and your life being built up as God does that, and he strengthens your faith and so that you can go out and overflow to the world around you. So let's read verses 6 and 7. And now just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Amen.